0: We'll be looking at the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic, or Old Covenant, in the sermon. So I thought it would be good to familiarize ourselves, or refamiliarize ourselves, in most, if not every case, of the account in the book of Exodus of the words that God spoke on the mount called Sinai. I'm going to begin in Exodus chapter 19, verse 24, and read through verse 18 to give you a bit of the context. You can stand with me if you're able and willing. If you're not, that's fine. Exodus nineteen twenty four. Then the Lord said to him, that is Moses, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not take him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day, and hallowed it way back at the creation account that we read of in Genesis 2. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'll have more to say um, later on that. It does sound kind of important, though. Whatever's happening there sounds pretty important and um, fear and awe-invoking as well. This morning, we'll remember the churches of the Antelope Valley and focusing on Reformation Bible Church in Bakersfield. Let's pray. We come now to our time of public uh, prayer, acknowledging our need once again for grace, for the work of God for us and the work of God in us. So our, our Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do your wonderful work of blessing your word, bringing it to us with that power that affects um, mental uh, chain, intellectual changes, spiritual changes, affectional changes within us so that we might live better uh, for you in light of this hour of worship. We confess our sins and we ask you to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all the unrighteousness that sometimes uh, way too more often than it ought to cling to us but by the grace of the Lord Jesus, we know that we have access to the throne of grace in our time of need for help, so help us. Thank you that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we also recognize that life is often very hard. The Christian life is messy. Life in the world uh, is messy. We are messy at times ourselves, and Surely there are people here at various levels of, of um, experience and various kinds of tribal, trials. So draw near to all of us in our unique stations in life and bring your word as it's needed. A word of comfort, a word of rebuke, a word of correction, uh, maybe a new word, an old word in one sense, but a new understanding of old things. Bring those things to us glorify your name in all the churches in the Antelope Valley gathering on this Lord's Day. And we want to recognize especially the Reformation Bible Church in Bakersfield and the Re- Regnau pastors and all the brothers and all the sisters there. We desire your blessings upon them and all the true churches. Indeed, all the true churches throughout the, the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic or the Old Covenant. Now what we just read was in Exodus chapter 20. The formal or the bloodshedding inauguration that formally enacts the Mosaic Covenant isn't recorded for us until Exodus chapter 24, I think verse 8. The reason why we're looking at this is because we're doing a survey uh, of the Bible and the function of law and focusing in on the, on the Ten Commandments. So we're considering those and how they function throughout the Bible. If you remember in the first sermon, I said something like this It is instinctual for most Christians to judge the actions of people in the Bible found before Mount Sinai based on the Ten Commandments. Remember, I said that? I said, Oh, most people have an instinct. I think it's a good one. And I agree with it. That when you read before Exodus 20 and you look at people's actions, you judge whether they are good and bad based on what? The Ten Commandments. And uh, I think there's something good and right about that. But we're trying to dig a little deeper and say, what is good and right about that? Uh, the Ten Commandments weren't revealed publicly, formally, until God said these words on Mount Sinai, and then you remember if you keep reading the account, God first spoke the words, then God wrote the words by his finger, therefore God has fingers, right? It's a a metaphor for the execution of divine power terminating on two stone tablets, and then you remember Moses had a bad day and he broke the tablets, and then... God in his goodness gave him a new set of stone tablets so all that's happening and you as you read through it you realize that after reading the Exodus 20 account which we started in Exodus 19 and went after verse 17 which is the end of the 10th commandment into verse 18 to kind of set the scene here this is a big deal whatever this is it is a big deal um In the past, in these sermons, we've seen that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God with the law of God written in our hearts and with what we call the created gift of original righteousness. They were able to look outside of themselves, see creaturely things, and based on this law written in their hearts, engage with the creaturely thing in strict correspondence, yeah, blah, blah, strict correspondence with that which was written within. You're not like that now, and I'm not like that either, because the fall into sin curse has divine curse has come upon human nature, and we receive a polluted human nature because we are naturally generated from a human father and a human mother, and God judges has judged human, mankind so that even though we we have we are the image of God and we have the law within, it's not utterly effaced but it is pretty foggy, fogged up in our souls. And different cultures respond to it differently based on habits that are formed because parents or society train them to think a certain way in line with what's written in them. So sometimes you see it more overtly outward than at other times. Some of you, I mentioned blue laws, I think a few weeks ago. Blue laws were fourth commandment laws in the United States, that forbade certain activities. I remember reading of a situation where a Presbyterian elder who worked for the Postal Service was going to be forced to work on a Sunday. And I think he said in order, I don't know what he said, but it was a big deal at his church. And for us, we'd go, well work you got to put food on the table and I get that works of necessity works of mercy you got to provide for your own but we don't think in those categories anymore our culture has kind of left that so we got football which by the way NFL football on Sunday was a big deal when it first happened now it's like a huge multi-billion dollar worldwide idol on what day of the week you think that's an accident no, somebody behind the scenes is doing something to confuse. Anyway, even commandments like thou shalt not commit adultery. Most of us know there was a time in at least Central California. I'm not sure about Southern California. It's been debauched for a longer time than Central California. When uh, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery was a big deal. Somebody got a divorce. It was like, what? You, what? you know, in some families, we don't do that um that's not all necessarily good i'm not saying we just need to get back to the 1950s in central california because it, there were some sins being conducted back then as well but all that to say this sense of right and wrong is still in us and it as we as it branches out as we view creatures around us and engage with culture it, it is multifaceted. It's not just one thing. It's multifaceted. It has to do with how we treat our parents, how we treat children, how we treat others, how we treat God, how we treat truth, uh, how we treat time, all that stuff. But because we're all messed up, um, it looks different in different cultures. By the way, the three monotheistic, major three uh, monotheistic religions in on the earth today are Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Isn't it interesting? All three of those monotheistic religions, that's what philosophers and historians call it, all three of them have a holy day once a week, don't they? Very interesting. Where'd that come from? Why do they do that? Well, the the Pope requires it. So we bow down, because we're good papists, we bow down to the Pope. I'm kidding. Now, this situation that we read about in Exodus 20, these are Abrahamites. Abraham had various promises given to him. One was that he would give, God would give Abrahamites a land. He had already revealed a promise of a skull-crushing seed of the woman way back in the curse language of Genesis 3. Various people believe that promise that somebody from a woman would come, a male seed from a woman would come and demolish the devil. And that would also be not just judgment on the devil and sin, but also mercy for mankind. So that promise is uh, revealed and then it's passed on. Abraham receives it and believes that promise, but also Abraham is given other covenantal promises, one of them including land and the other one including seed, not just Christ, Galatians 3.16, but um, a multitude of Abrahamites that would inherit his promises, ultimately in the land of promise, ancient Israel, for the purpose of preparing the world for the Messiah, so that when that happens, the Abrahamites and their unique covenantal promises have fulfilled their purposes and they no longer function. You read the New Testament, that becomes very, very clear. Once Christ comes on the scene, the, that which was typifying him in the old economy has been abrogated because fulfilled. It served its purpose. It had a terminus. It had a point at which it was going to serve its, serve its purpose no more because that which it pointed to has come in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son. Now, in the midst of all this, we have um, we have uh, Abrahamites down in Egypt because of a Famine. And you remember the whole Joseph story and all that stuff. Well, now we fast forward from the end of Genesis all the way to Moses being called by God to take his people out of Egypt and to go in pursuit of the Abrahamic land promises over to the promised land. So they're in Egypt. Then the exodus from Egyptian bondage happens, the Red Sea, where you have mercy for, for the covenant people of God, would, the would-be covenant, well, the co- Abraham the Abramites, who were covenant people of God at the time, and then judgment upon God's enemies, the Egyptians, Pharaoh and his army. At the same time, then you have the wanderings. the whole generation wanders out in the wilderness and takes them 40 years to end up getting to the promised land finally. God calls Moses to be the mediator of this covenant, the servant of a covenant. And that's what Exodus 20 and following is all about. Now, what we're doing is we're focusing in on the Mosaic or Old Covenant, and the function of the Ten Commandments within it. Okay, So this is going to be about a 90-part series from Exodus 20 through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. I'm kidding. It's one sermon, or two sermons. But we're looking at Mount Sinai here, and the words God spoke. We won't look at the stone tablet text. Actually, we might. I'm not sure. And we're asking the question, how is this... Body of ethical principles. How is that functioning within the larger body of Mosaic law? Because if you've read the Old Testament or even the New Testament, you know that there's more to the Mosaic law than just the Ten Words, uh, the Ten Commandments. So we're asking the question of: What is is there a unique place or a unique function for the Ten Commandments in the Mosaic law, and how can we see that? So. I have uh, some observations that I think will illustrate the unique function of the Ten Commandments under the Mosaic Covenant, and here's my first observation: The Ten Commandments occur as a eunuch eunuch, a unit. In two Old Testament texts, okay, a unit where they're all spelled out for us in order, 1 through 10, those two places are Exodus 20, verses 2 through 17, which we already read, and Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 21, which we won't read. But in both those places, it's a unit. All 10 of them go together. And there are sometimes in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament talks about the law or the law of Moses, it's explicitly referring back to the ten as a unit. It's very interesting. The first time God speaks these words, As far as we know, Exodus 20. First time God writes these words on stone tablets. The second time God writes these words on stone tablets. The first time Moses writes them, Exodus 20. The first time, second time Moses writes them, Deuteronomy 25. They're, it's a, they're a unit. They don't occur any other place, all ten in order as a unit, but God speaking them, God writing them twice, and Moses, Moses writing them twice. The Old Testament then clearly assumes that the Ten Commandments function as a unit, as ten, a whole body of ethics, um, in mer- many places. I'm not going to turn you to all the texts. If you're interested and in you look at it, all those texts, you can come up to me afterwards and I can give them to you. And here's the point. The point is that the Old Testament views the Ten Commandments as a unit, all ten together. So where I'm going with this is if... Some place in the Old Testament or someplace in the New Testament, we conclude the Ten Commandments are applicable to Christians. I'm going to argue, then all ten of them are. That's one thing to say that. It's another thing to, to, well, what does that look like? And we'll get there someday. I will write my law on their hearts. What does that refer to? We'll be there in a minute. So we have this unit of God-given law. Now, it's of interest to note that the form of the Ten Commandments is modified a bit in Deuteronomy. You want to read there, you can. But the fourth commandment, we already read Exodus 20, says, for in six days God created and he rested on the seventh. In Deuteronomy, the basis for Israel's Sabbath, ultimately in the land of promise. Again, in Exodus, they're not in the land of promise yet, right? Moses never made it there. They're out wandering in the wilderness. So here we have laws that ultimately end up in the land, predating the land. And in Exodus 20, out on Mount Sinai, God speaks these words, and he bases their Sabbath on creation, But in Deuteronomy, he bases it on redemption from Egyptian bondage. We'll deal with the difference there. I just wanted to note that. We need to explore it, though, because it's very interesting and intriguing. Okay, what's the basis of the fourth commandment for ancient Israel? Creation and what? Redemption. That's worth remembering, right? We'll get there someday. Now, if these two passages, which contain the Ten Commandments, as a unit are compared... It's obvious they are formally they're not formally identical. One bases the fourth commandment on God's work and rest at creation, the other bases the fourth commandment on God's work of redeeming them from Egyptian bondage. So they're not formally identical. Now add to this the fact that Deuteronomy 5:22 says this. Listen. These words, referring to the 10 words, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Now that's interesting. Moses says, God wrote these 10 words on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. But when Moses writes about the 10 commandments, He writes one, in one place, the fourth commandment based on creation, and the other place, the fourth commandment's based on redemption. What in the world did God write on stone tablets? Is Moses adding to them? Moses sinned. It kind of looks like it, right? You see the dilemma. You're not supposed to add anything to these. We have two different accounts of them. Moses, what he wrote in Exodus 20, he says God spoke these words. And Moses, what he wrote in Deuteronomy 5. There's not a huge difference, but there is a difference. How could Moses' two accounts of the Ten Commandments differ if God himself added no more than what God wrote on stone tablets? I want everybody to get what's going on here. We got an apparent dilemma. You are to add nothing to what I wrote on stone tablets in terms of the Ten Commandments as a unit. But Moses has two slightly different accounts of the basis for the fourth commandment. How do we deal with this dilemma? Well, maybe we could say this. Well, God spoke, then Moses wrote... Do we ever have an account of Moses writing in Moses writing of the exact things that God wrote on stone tablets? You ever wondered that? What was written on those stone tablets? Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5? or well, maybe both. Or maybe something else. Maybe a reduced version of this. Exodus 20, or Deuteronomy 5. Matter of fact, I think that's exactly what was written on the stone tablets. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Something like that. You shall not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother probably the you know the versions you might have in your house we have a couple of them that are abbreviated that doesn't doesn't have all the details that either Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 have i think something like that's probably a better answer to the question what did god himself write on stone tablets i'm not the first to suggest this by the way you know by now i don't i try not to suggest anything that's new um, what's new is not true and what's true is not new. J. Vern, J. J. Vernon McGee was right, you know. He used to say that, my beloved, what is new is not true and what is true is not new. So this is an old, older view that I think has been lost that basically there was a, the, 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 the tablets of stone must have contained a summary form of the two accounts of the Decalogue given by Moses. Moses must have added some unique features to that which was written on stone tablets in order for the Jews under the Mosaic or Old Covenant to, uh, to, uh, to apply the law of God in their unique circumstances. Now, we know, if you read the Old Testament, you know that uh, adultery is a capital crime. You could even be a disobedient child to the point of it being a capital crime. Now these, these are unique appendages, unique additions to the application of the Ten Commandments in a given redemptive historical context. So what I think would happen was this, that Moses accommodated what God wrote on stone tablets to the life of old covenant Israel Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, here's what I think an Anglican said in the last century, two centuries ago. It seems clear that on the two, uh, two tablets, they, the Ten Commandments, were carved in their simplest and shortest form. So why are there slightly different versions of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5? Because the Sabbath has a twofold basis, creation and redemption. Now, this view of abbreviated form, I think is supported on the stone tablets, is supported by several considerations. First, elsewhere in Scripture, commands of the Decalogue are summarized by single words. Uh, You want to see the best example, I think? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, I believe, is reducing... The commands of the Decalogue to single words here. I argue first through the ninth commandment. I won't give, present that argumentation. But here we have the Bible itself reducing commands of the Decalogue to single words in terms of the worst possible violators of them. First Timothy 1, 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers. See, these are single word summaries of full commandments found in the 10. And this is actually in the order of the first through the ninth. For kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So there you have the apostle himself reducing commands of the Decalogue to their essence in terms of uh, the worst possible violations of it. But also notice this, both in Matthew 19, 18 Uh, by our Lord himself, and Paul in Romans 13, 9, they quote the ninth commandment, but here's all they say, you shall not bear false witness. It doesn't say against your neighbor in either of those texts. It's just you shall not bear false witness. So there is a larger commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, reduced to its bare essential essence. Uh, You shall not bear false witness, you shall not lie you know, on some versions of it. But think of this thirdly. Paul references the 10th commandment in Romans 7.7 7, and in Romans 13.9, stating only its essential elements. You shall not covenant, covet full stop. Well, you can't do that, Paul. That's not the 10th commandment. I think Paul would say, yeah, it is. I can reduce the tenth commandment to its essence because if you read the accounts in Deuteronomy twenty and uh, excuse me Exodus twenty and Deuteronomy five, it's clear that Moses is applying the ten commandments as a unit to Israel, to either to be or having already been brought into covenant with God. But the essence of the ten commandments doesn't have to do universally, transculturally, and transcovenantally with cattle. You shall not covet your neighbor's cattle because not everybody's going to have cattle. They had cattle then. The essence of it doesn't have to do with servants, either male or female. That's that's conditioned upon the culture in which they live. The essence of it is, however, you shall not covet full stop. That's why in our house, where the Ten Commandments occur, wherever it is, might be in our room, and I think I have mirrors so that my wife always constantly sees it. It's a reminder. It just says, "You shall not covet." Full stop. It's okay. We can reduce larger commands that Moses wrote in full in Exodus 20 and in full in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We can reduce them to their uh, their core essence. Jesus did it. It's good enough for Jesus should be good enough for me. Paul did it, if it's good enough for Paul, should be good enough for me. By the way, it's the essence of this, that which is contained in the 10 that's morally binding on everybody, not its specific form that occurs in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, because again, that's for Abrahamites under the Mosaic Covenant. So it's gonna have its unique temporary appendages attached, attached, attached to it. Finally, there are other places where the whole Old Testament is summarized in two commands. Teacher, which is, this is uh, Matthew twenty two thirty six to 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all and with all your mind, a text in Deuteronomy. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, a text in Leviticus. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, So here's the law and the prophets can be reduced to love God, love your neighbor. Well, if the whole Testament can be reduced in terms of its substance, its core, its essence, in a small proposition, you love God, love your neighbor, can't the Ten Commandments? Matter of fact, love God and love your neighbor is in the Ten Commandments. You can see it. Love commands are comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Themselves, first four toward God, the first last six toward man. So now what becomes clear is that the Ten Commandments contained what can be reduced. The Ten Commandments, as they occur in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, they contain what can be reduced. You shall not covet, full stop. Shall not bear false witness, full stop. Honor your father and mother, and we could say full stop. Or we could add to it, like Paul does in Ephesians 6. But the essence of the Ten Commandments can also be added to. Fourth Commandment's based on creation in one text, Fourth Commandment's based on redemption in another text, without tinkering with the essence of the command itself. Those are just applications in a given context. So the Ten Commandments function as a unit. That was my first point. Wasn't that exciting? It's kind of technical and all that stuff. And I get it. It's technical. But I don't assume you're dumb and you don't want to know things. I assume you're actually intelligent. You're believers in Christ. you got a big Bible. The biggest part of it is the Old Testament. When you read the New Testament, the law of Moses is pretty important. We need to understand how this is all working. So my second observation is this. The Ten Commandments were spoken by God and written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. You say, well, duh. Well, that's not a duh. That's, a, that's actually a profound observation. I borrowed it. I'm not the first one to say it. So if it's, it's profundity is not grounded in me. Its profundity is grounded in the, f- whether or not it's actually reflective of scripture and, uh, and then all the smart guys that I got it from. The Ten Commandments were spoken by God. We got that in Exodus 20. Then God said, boom, that's the Ten Commandments. They're spoken. Deuteronomy 9.10 testifies of the same thing. But they were subsequently written by God on tablets of stone. You can see that in Exodus 24 verse 12 Exodus 31:18 Exodus 34:28 and Deuteronomy 9:10 Here's Deuteronomy 9:10 Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God the execution of divine power terminating on these stones producing these 10 words and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire In the day of the assembly, God then takes it upon himself both to speak and write the very heart of the older Mosaic covenant. The heart of it is this thing, this thing we call the 10 words, the Decalogue. God speaks it, then God writes it. God speaks it, all this audible voices comes from heaven, and the 10 words are spoken. God writes it, 10 tablets. Seems like it's kind of important because God doesn't speak the entirety of what we call the Mosaic law. Moses writes it. God doesn't write the entirety of what we call the Mosaic law on stone tablets. He only writes the 10 words. So I think that's very important. Third, my third observation, this might be the last one. Oh, I got a fourth one. Third one is this, the 10 commandments, uh, as contained on stone tablets, were put in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when you read, read that in Deuteronomy? If you haven't read it, you probably should need, need to read it. Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 5. We read this uh, in 2 Chronicles 5:10. looking back. Nothing was put in the Ark except the two tablets which Moses put there. So God writes with his own finger, the execution of divine power, terminating on stone tablets, the ten words, Moses puts them in this container called the Ark of the Covenant. You think that's kind of important? I will put them in their mind. You ever read those words? We're going to get to those words. Moses put them, the Ten Commandments or the stone tablets, in the Ark of the Covenant of the covenant. Methinks I can hear Spurgeon preaching a sermon on this. What do you think this typifies? Moses putting the, that which was written on stone tablets or the stone tablets in the ark. You know what the old writers said. This is, this is, a, this is typological of the work of Christ Writing not with ink, but by his spirit, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of hearts. Putting the law, new creation language, within us, writing it on our hearts. Now the book of the law, which Moses wrote, was put beside the Ark of the Covenant. That's an interesting observation from Deuteronomy as well. The stone tablets are put in the book of the law, that which Moses wrote, is put beside the covenant. Do you think there's a distinction there between the stone tablets and that which Moses wrote, the book of the law? I think there is a distinction there. Uh, One of them was God's own voice first, and then God's own power etching onto stone tablets. The other was an inspired prophet, Moses. Very different and distinct, and I think important uh, observation to make there. It means that, at least this much, if the t- stone tablets are put in the ark, they must be sacred to a degree that the others aren't. Not that the others' laws aren't sacred, but this must have a special function, a unique function. And this is exactly what you get when you study the uh, my friends on my shelf. For instance, here's what one man says, that the Ten Commandments come unmediated, that is, directly from God voice of God, stone tablets, that the Ten Commandments come unmediated and the case law, what Moses wrote, primarily in Exodus 21 through 23 in his discussion, the case law is delivered through Moses indicates the primary character of the Decalogue, the Ten Words, and the secondary character of the Covenant Code, End quote. So the book of the law, this thing Moses wrote, is supplemental, to the Ten Commandments as our confession argues. Listen to what our confession says. Besides this law commonly called moral, that which God wrote on uh, ten uh, stone tablets, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws. You've heard this language before. To them, that is Old Covenant Israel also, he gave sundry judicial laws. The ceremonial laws and judicial laws are viewed as supplementary to the Ten Commandments, something in under the Mosaic Covenant is extremely unique about this voice that came from heaven, which ends up being the Ten Commandments, and then the finger of God, which ends up creating the ten words on the stone tablets. They are distinct from each other. The Bible itself, by the way, sees distinctions there. I have another quote I'm not going to read. I think you understand that. Um, they are unique. And my third observation was, The Ten Commandments were put in the Ark of the Covenant, making them distinct from others and vitally important. And then, fourth, and I think this this is my last one, you could breathe finally. This is my last observation on the function of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Covenant. The Ten Commandments function as the basic, fundamental law of the Old Covenant, and were applied as such to the unique, historical, and covenantal conditions in which Israel existed. The Ten Commandments functioned as the basic fundamental law of the Old or Mosaic Covenant, and they were applied in unique situations. Here's what one man says. The Ten Commandments stood at the center of Old Testament ethics and were the touchstones for judging all deeds. They were the basis for all moral and legal accusation. I think we all have an instinct. You just read through the Bible and go, whoa, whoa. There's something important about that Mount Sinai situation that's happening here. God wouldn't let the people go up there, only Moses and Aaron, and they they heard the voice of God. And then God himself, uh, there was thunder and lightning and all this stuff, and the people could see some of it, they, they, but not the whole thing. And so God is doing something important, and the stone tablets seem to be so important that God would actually make a second pair of them after Moses uh, broke them because he was carnally angry or whatever happened to Moses. But seeing them as the the core, the essential core of the Mosaic covenant and its law, I I think it's a simple observation that uh, most Christians make. Um, Here's what another commentator says. The Ten Commandments are highly unusual in their ancient Near Eastern context in that they express general, ethical, theological principles. They express general, ethical, theological principles. And here he's going to use a technical term. A technical term often used for this is apodictic. That's why you came to church this morning. To get a new word, apodictic. Now, I wrestled this morning with whether or not to include this quote. I'm going to explain what it means, and once you understand what it means, you go, I already knew that, I just didn't know the word, which is good. great. Most ancient Near Eastern law, as well as most biblical law, is case law. I'll describe the difference. That is, law that concerns specific situations. Case laws concern specific situations. But what about these apodictic laws? What does that mean? What are they trying to get out there? Here's what one man says. Laws that unconditionally and categorically assert right and wrong. That's what an apodictic law is. So an apodictic law would be universally binding on all creatures created in the image of God. But a case law can be a positive law added to the law that's universally binding on everybody for a specific period of time. So here's what this whole apodictic thing is saying. God incorporates what we call the moral law written on our hearts into ancient Israel's body of law, but God also adds, remember that other technical phrase, positive laws, laws added to the moral law written on the heart, but now spoken by God and written on stone tablets for ancient Israel. He adds these case laws as well. Now you're going, what in the world? What are, you, what are you getting at? Well, I think it's just an observation of what's going on here. One writer goes on to say that apodictic law expresses categorical affirmations or prohibitions such as those found in the, tenth, in the Ten Commandments. So those are my four observations. I have some more, but those are for the next hour. Or you can't wait till the next hour, right? That wasn't kind of heady. It was a little pedantic, I think. And, you know, you have to make distinctions and all that stuff. And, and now I want to back up and say, okay, all right. What do I take home? You know, can I contemplate something here that's going to be good for my mind, my heart, my soul, my life? And I think we can. First of all, the Ten Commandments were central in the Mosaic Covenant. I think that's clear. Ten Commandments were central. And we could even say, and they were apodictic. That is, they contained within themselves universal rights and wrongs that apply elsewhere, but had a unique application for ancient Israel. Second, the Mosaic Covenant contained more law than only the Ten Commandments. Duh. But it did. It contained various other positive laws, laws added to the apodictic core, Ten Commandments, such as some that were ceremonial. Some were ceremonial laws, that is, laws revealed by God to repair the damage that sin brings, the breach between God and the the sacrificial system, the worship and the priesthood and all that stuff. Some were ceremonial. Uh, By the way, the ceremonial laws that had to do with worship where were they all revealed to be obeyed in the land itself? Remember the tabernacle that traveled with them it, during the wilderness wanderings? There are tabernacle laws that apply to the wilderness-wandering generation before they go into the promised land. So this ceremonial law, some of these ceremonial laws were enacted prior to their entrance into the promised land, but some of the ceremonial laws were for them in the promised land. I think we'll see that later uh, this afternoon. And these judicial laws, you know, our confession makes that threefold distinction. What about judicial laws? Well, they really didn't get set up as a society that has settled until they got into the promised land. You know what we're going to end up seeing, I think, the next hour? We're going to see some laws that predate entrance into the land, like the Decalogue, and the laws with reference to the, some of the laws with reference to the tabernacle. Then we're going to find other statutes that were for Israel. And here's the language of the Bible: in the land. So there's some exclusive in the land laws as well. Isn't this getting fun? I thought we were going to contemplate for practical purposes. We are. The Old Testament, a third contemplation. The Old Testament promises a day when the law of God will be written on the hearts of those under the inaugurated new covenant. This is something we're going to have to wrestle with. So here we are in the Old Testament. We're looking at the Mosaic covenant and the function of the Ten Commandments in it. We're making various observations. But if you keep reading the Old Testament, you have this language in Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put, I already mentioned this. I will put my law in their minds. That's where I said, "Methinks I hear Spurgeon saying, Oh, he put his law, that which he wrote on ten, tab- ten tablets. Moses, that is. Moses put it in the ark. It, could Moses be a type of Christ somehow, some way? Uh, putting the law of God in the minds of... You can fill in the blanks. I will put my law in their minds and write it... On their hearts, Now one of the things we have to do when we get to Jeremiah is we have to ask a question, "What is it? I will write it." It's called "My law." It's not a big leap to say to ask the next question. Would well, did God ever write a law himself? Now Moses, we know Moses wrote a lot, but did God ever write a law himself? And the answer is that which was on stone tablets. But listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3:3. Clearly. You are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now that seems to echo stuff that we've been studying. We've got flesh, we've got stones, we've got hearts, we've got uh, epistles, he says, you're not a written epistle with ink, but in one sense you are our epistle, written not by us and not with first by virtue of First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, but by Christ, not with ink, but with the Spirit, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh—that is, of the heart. That seems to connect. Both testaments there, doesn't it? It does, by the way. Paul is defending himself to the Corinthians. He would have them think back upon their own conversion to Christ. So as if you're a believer in Christ, think about back about on your conversion. Uh, Paul says, We ministered Christ to you, we served Christ, we proclaimed the gospel to you. But Christ ministered something to you while we were ministering Christ to you. So the preacher comes and ministers Christ to you. Uh, your parents come and they minister Christ to you. And if you get saved, while the, that's happening, Christ is ministering something to you at the same time. Christ wrote on, he's basically telling the Corinthians, Christ wrote on your hearts by the Spirit. He did not write on stone tablets, though he did write what was written on stone tablets, but on your hearts. Why? Why would, why would we need this? work of renovation on our hearts because we were lawbreakers in need of new creation. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, new creation. He's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all, excuse me, all old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then Paul elsewhere, he's thinking about this new creation in Ephesians. He says, this, this new man, you as a new person in Christ, have been created according to God in true righteousness and true holiness. Going back to the creation account. And at Colossians, he says this, we have been renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So, when the gospel comes with power, it changes people. And one of the, some of the language we can use to define the change that happens to us or that happened to us is that while the gospel was coming from the lips of a person, whether a preacher or an apostle or a parent, a father or mother or a sibling or somebody else, while the external word is coming through the ear gate into our mind and all that stuff, God is doing something by his Spirit in us, a work of renewal, a work of recreation, writing, putting, uh, putting it in us, writing it on our hearts. Why do we need it written on our hearts if it's already there by creation? In Adam, all die. Something happened to us. We are, if you haven't figured this out, we are not now walking around on the earth in the same condition that Adam and Eve were walking around when they were first created. But we have, there is some hangover, okay? Some leftover from their created state. We're still image bearers. We still have a law written on our heart. We still have a conscience. We don't have original righteousness. We can think, we can reason, but we're idolaters. We exchange the truth for a lie. We worship creatures, ourselves, and our families or whatever. Instead of the creator, But the mechanics of the basic stuff's all there. It's just all messed up. It needs a fix. The fix comes by God doing a work of recreation in us, all by his grace. Um, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the whole salvation by grace through faith thing, it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, See, the whole works and grace contrast in the New Testament is based in large part on people viewing the law of the Mosaic Covenant as an instrument through which if I obeyed it, I could earn grace and salvation in heaven. Not as a, as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And here it is. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ. There's the language of creation again. We are the effect of the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, grace comes, we receive the salvation that is offered to us in the gospel, and then works come as a result of it. And even the works there are in the language of Paul in Ephesians 2.10 uses the language of creation again. So it's, you know, you've heard me say this, this is the language of recreation. We need a new creation. We need to be renovated. And this work of ovate and renovate, I don't know if ovate's a word, but renovate means to renew. So to install or instill in the first place creation is a work of God. And so if there's a renewal, a recreation, who does it have to be, who has to be the agent of it? Us or God? It has to be God. So when God remakes us, there's this, there's this renovation of the image of God in us. We still have this thing called pollution or remaining sin, we call it. Uh, That weird inclination that's still within us to do what's not right, wretched men and women that we are, as Paul said in Romans 7. But if you're truly converted, there's something else going on in there as well. And that comes by virtue of you're, you're, just a, you're, you're better than other people. No, it's not that we're better than other people. It's this, the gospel came to me, and while the gospel is coming to me through a human agent or a creaturely agent, the scriptures God was doing an invisible work behind the scenes within my heart to change me, open my eyes and ears, give me eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, and and now what you want to do is you want to say, okay, what you should say is, all right, I've been created, recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. What do they look like? Well, do you want the big story or the short story? Give me the short story. You're already giving me too much, uh, too long. You're almost done with your time. The short story is this. Find out what the core essential law of God is and, and, and pray for grace to love it, to implement it in your life, to show forth your gratefulness and thankfulness. So that is it. I have a fifth observation, but that comes after lunch, if anybody stays around to hear it. I hope this was helpful. I wrestled around in bed last night wondering, is this going to work? Um, because it's like a lecture, right? But a long time ago, I concluded this. Prepare a good lecture. So at least you have good material. At least you think it's good material. And pray God turns it into a sermon. Because if he doesn't turn it into a sermon, at least they can go away fed. And they'll be smirking while they go away fed saying... A pastor presented his lecture material to us today, and God didn't turn it into a sermon. He's keeping him humble, which is a good thing. So may you profit from this. You see how important to know Christ is, I hope. You can study the law and ethics all you want, but if you don't have, you don't have Jesus, you don't have the forgiveness of sins, you don't have a righteousness according to the law that's going to get you into the safe presence of God, and you don't have the proper motive within your own heart to obey God out of gratefulness and thankfulness. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy in Christ Jesus that has come to many, and I hope all of us, and if not, bring it with power, convince whoever needs to be convinced that they're a lawbreaker, that they're guilty before heaven, and that if they don't repent, they'll be destroyed by divine wrath. We don't want that for anyone. Instead, we want mercy and grace and life and light and salvation and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Bring that to all of our hearts. Remind most of us of probably things we've already known but maybe don't uh, put together rightly. Help us not to use the law in the wrong way as a means to get, gain heaven and righteousness, but to use it as a right way as a means to convict us of our sins, and a means to show us, show us the way of thankfulness. Bless these words that were in line with your word, and any that weren't, we, we certainly don't ask a blessing, except the blessing that we would forget them and that they wouldn't lodge deeply into our souls. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.